Now, Father, the fact of the matter is um, many of us in here are extremely concerned about where we are as a nation and where we are going. We're concerned not only for us, we are concerned for our children and for their children. We are concerned, Lord, because uh, as I saw this afternoon, just in a sandwich shop and the sound was down, but I saw the TV report on CNN and they, and the headline was religious extremist. And uh, then they showed the document and I realized they were doing a story on focus on the family. And we've gotten to a point where Christians who believe in your word and who believe that certain things are right and true and moral because you have said so, we are now the new enemy in this country. We are religious extremists. That's how far things have gone, and um, that's why many of us are concerned. And between now and the next time we meet, if you so choose for next Wednesday to roll around for us, you may or may not choose for us to be here next Wednesday. But if we're here next Wednesday, there's going to uh, be a major decision that will be have made Tuesday. And uh, we're concerned. We're concerned because um, many of us in here realize that there are implications to ideas. And if we take a certain turn, we'll go down a path and we will lose some freedoms and we'll never get them back. That's how these things work. So that's why we're somewhat concerned. So how do we find peace? We come to you. You have already decided what's going to happen on Tuesday. And you decided it before the foundations of the world. And because you've decided and because your will is going to be done, we can have peace because you do all things well. It doesn't matter how many dead people vote. It doesn't matter how many laws are broken. It, ultimately, it doesn't. It's wrong, but ultimately it's in your hand. Now, at the same time, You've given us liberty, and you've given us a freedom to express our voice. And we are citizens of this land, so we are going to vote our conscience, and we're going to vote the Bible as we see it. But even as we do that, we cast all of our anxiety upon you. You want us to trust you. You know precisely what you're doing. You have a plan. It's, 
it's not out of control. It's under control. We see, th we see things getting worse and worse, but you told us things would get worse and worse. So, Father, give us perspective. You, you know our hearts. You know our concerns. But help us to back up and help us to realize that uh, our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Help us to realize you have established your throne in the heavens and your sovereignty rules over all. You're king of kings and you're lord of lords. We trust your judgment and we trust your wisdom and we trust your plan and we take refuge in your name. We would ask you to be merciful. We pray for the men in here tonight who are hurting. We pray for the men who are trying to figure out financially how they're going to make it because they've lost their incomes, they've lost their jobs. We pray that they will see you at the right time, at the right moment, fulfill your promise to them. Help them, Lord, to apply their faith. Help them to think about what you've said. Help them to live today and not tomorrow today because each day has enough trouble of its own. Help us to seek your kingdom first and your righteousness. And all these other things will be added unto us. Thank you for the answers to prayer that many of us have seen. I thank you for what you did for Josh last week. He'll never forget that. That was a profound expression of your providence in his life. And he'll remember that to his dying day. Thank you that you do those things for us and for our children and for our grandchildren. Thank you that this Bible that we're going to study is true. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, it's true. We're so glad you're there. We're so glad you are our Father. We really are. Teach us tonight, we pray, by your Spirit. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the, world, uh, in the world system, when I say the world system, I say the system that is contrary to God and the system that we live in that is contrary to the things of God. You know, the Bible says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Uh, the world is that which is in uh, rebellion to God. But when we come to know Christ and he works in our hearts and draws us to himself, 
we are put into his church, into his invisible body, and then uh, we become part of visible bodies, visible churches that teach the word of God. Um, but out there in the world, they've got a different set of values. In the world system, uh, let me give you one example. In the world system, charisma always trumps character in the world system. But in the church, where Jesus is Lord, you see it's the complete opposite. In the church, in God's kingdom, character always trumps Charisma. Uh, this past weekend, I, I was speaking to a bunch of young guys in their 20s and 30s. And uh, one of the things I said to them was, uh, we were just talking about how, how each one of us is gifted and, you know, you know, how we're put together and God has a slot for everybody, but sometimes we wish we were gifted differently than we are and we wish we had certain gifts that we don't have and we see somebody and we think, gosh, how come I didn't get those gifts, and how come I can't be like that, and that guy's so confident, and how come I can't be like, you know. And one of the things I said to him, I said, be very, very careful of men that are gifted, especially young men who are highly gifted. Be careful. Be very, very careful, because the problem with young men that are gifted is that they have charisma. And the problem with guys who are young and are gifted is that they tend to coast on their gifts. Guys who are gifted extraordinarily gifted, tend not to work hard because they're so gifted. They don't have to work hard. They can just do it. They can seemingly talk their way in or out of anything. Uh, you got to watch young guys that are extraordinarily gifted. Why? Because the tendency is, if you're young and you're gifted, the tendency is to live off your charisma and not develop your character. But character is critical. We've been talking about the Giants this fall. Um, and, uh, and, and just to make a real quick review, get everybody up to speed, we, we have made this statement throughout this study, and the statement has been, if you desire to be used by God, you must fight the Giants. If you desire for God to use you in some way, shape, or fashion, you are going to find yourself fighting giants. The Christian life is a series of encounters with giants. There are giant diseases. There are giant depressions. There are giant financial setbacks. There are giant relational issues. There are giant marriage issues. There are giant issues with kids. There are all kinds of giants that come into our lives. And... The thing about giants is when you encounter a giant, you experience a natural giant acid reflux. Um, you, there's, there's a response. And whenever you encounter a giant, um, you get intimidated. That's what happens, because they're a giant. And then secondly, you're very aware of your own inadequacy. I, I can't do this. I can't handle this. There's no way, you see. So we have kind of used it as, as our springboard the event that took place in Numbers 13, the story of the 12 spies who went into the land to check out the land. They came back after 40 days. They gave their report. You know the story. Um, one of the things they said, it's a great land. And then secondly, they said, but there are giants in the land, a literal race of giants. And 10 of the 12 spies said to the people, 
Uh, we are not able to defeat these giants. But Joshua and Caleb stood up and said, we are able because God will fight for us. Any giant that you encounter, you are not alone and you are not by yourself. God knows the giant. May I say this to you? Ultimately, God has sent the giant. Ultimately, God has sent it. You say, well, I'm not comfortable with that. Well, just all right, think about Job for a minute. Did Job face any giants? Yes, he did. You say, well, that was Satan. Yes, it was, but who gave Satan permission? God. He said, you can go this far, and you cannot cross this line. So ultimately, whatever your affliction, whatever your giant, ultimately, it comes from the Lord. Because, well, why would God do that? Because God takes his men, and he tests his men. He wants to mature us. He wants to grow us up. And I'm going to tell you something. He's relentless with us. He's relentless. He wants us to grow. He wants us to mature. He wants, to become, wants us to become strong in our faith. We tend to be men of little faith. He wants us to become men of big faith. Well, how do you become a man of big faith? Well, you keep running into giants that you can't take and you can't handle. And what does God do? God comes through for you. The more God comes through for you, the more your faith increases. Not in yourself, but in the greatness of God and the fact that he will fulfill his promises. That's what God does. Christian life is one gigantic boot camp. You're always up at 5 in the morning. You're always doing these 29-mile hikes in the winter. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm just making this stuff up. I don't know. But this is why life is hard. This is why life is difficult. This is why it rarely lets up. And this is why we get together. On Sundays, this is why we get together for Bible study. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, Hebrews says, as is the habit of some. Why don't we forsake the assembling of ourselves together? We need to get together. We need to be encouraged. We need to look at the Word of God. Because it's tough out there. It's hard out there. It's a battle. It's a struggle. Every guy in here is facing some kind of giant. Every guy. We've been looking at Joshua and Caleb. But tonight I want to look at two other guys. Uh, and these are two really interesting guys. Joshua chapter 2. In Joshua chapter 2, we're going to see that character always triumphs over charisma. Now, in Joshua chapter 2, you remember we just covered what happened, what happened in Numbers 13, where they had the 12 spies? They sent them in, okay? All right, now in Joshua chapter 2, it's 40 years later. They've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. When the 10 spies said, we're not able, God will not deliver us, and they began to complain and rebel against God, God had it with those 10 leaders. They should have known better. They had seen his power 10 times. They had seen his power 11th time in opening up the Red Sea. These guys were leaders. They were accountable to whom much is given, much is required. Okay? Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren. James says, because teachers incur a stricter, anybody know? Judgment. Yeah. You're a teacher? You better be careful if you're going to teach. I'll tell you why. You're going to be judged to a higher standard because if you're a teacher, you're expected to know the word and study the word. So if you know this word, you're, you've got a higher accountability than someone who doesn't know it. Well, I want to teach. I got charisma. Well, you're dangerous. If you've got charisma and you want to teach and you want to be up front, you're a walking time bomb, man. 
You see? You're going to be tested. I mean, that's true for all of us. You see? Too much is given, much is required. Okay, now we're, we're going to meet two guys here. This is 40 years after the events of the 12 spies. 40 years later. And here's what it says. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. This is significant. This is the second recon mission after the first recon mission ended in absolute failure. Okay? So this, this is a big deal. Moses has died. They've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years because of the sins of those who did not believe God. Everybody over 20 has died except for Joshua and Caleb. Now Moses is dead. Joshua is the leader. And now it's time to go into the land. And things have changed in 40 years. So what does Joshua do? I find it interesting that he doesn't choose 12, he chooses, <laughs> isn't that classic? He chooses two. See, this is called experience. <laughs> this is called learning from the mistakes. And, and uh, I mean, it's just, it's just the way life works. You screw up, and then what happens? Well, you know what? I need to learn from that. So there's not 12 guys this time. There were two guys. Interestingly enough, the first time, how many guys were faithful? Two. So he picks two guys. Um, the name of these two guys, the names of these two guys are, um, uh, we don't know their names. I find that interesting. We just don't know their names. Their names are never given. But they were given a Huge assignment. Huge. What's the assignment? Go view the land. We haven't viewed it for 40 years. View the land. Especially Jericho. Why Jericho? Because Jericho's the first battle we're going to fight. Jericho was a, uh, for that, was a massive city of that day. Jericho was a formidable city. Uh, Jericho, Jericho was the oldest city in the world. If you go to Israel, um, Dick, when you were in Israel, did you guys go to Jericho? No, we didn't. See, that day you couldn't go in. When you go to Israel and you take the tour, uh, they got these amazing Israeli tour guides. And you can ask these guys anything, anything. You can ask them about the Bible. You can ask them about a plant. Uh, you can ask them about the tile in the hotel lobby. You can ask these guys anything, and they'll tell you. Uh, they are the cream of the cream in Israel. And they are put through an unbelievable, rigorous uh, uh, course of study that takes years and years and years to pass the exam for being an Israeli guide. So you always have an Israeli guide. But in the morning, when you get on the bus, you got your schedule. Well, these are, you know, they got an amazing security system in Israel. And uh, these guys went in to spy out the land. They're still spying out the land, they got spies in every city. And I remember, I've been over there three times, and twice we went to Jericho. The third time, we get in the bus, and hey, we're going to Jericho today. Uh, well, we're not going to Jericho today. We're going to go ahead and go to Bet Shan. Oh, okay, great. 
And they don't tell you why, but there's something going on in Jericho. They've figured out something's, you know, maybe they're going to do a terrorist attack on a bus or something. But if there's any question, you're not going to Jericho. Jericho is always, but you can still visit it today, and you can visit the ruins. Uh, Jericho was a formidable city. It was a significant city. It, it was sort of the, uh, uh, it, it was the door it was the door that would open to the entire promised land. So go check out the land, especially, especially Jericho. Now, watch this. So they went and came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. Why would they go to the house of a harlot? Well, because the way that Jericho was built, they had, uh, they had two massive walls, and uh, as, as a defense, uh, the, the walls were, were, were significant. They, they were formidable. Uh, but they also had houses at certain points built on that wall. Um, now, why would they go to the, to, to the house of a prostitute? Well, because a lot of men go in and out of the houses of prostitutes, strange men. It just, uh, it, just, it just made sense. So they go to the house of this gal by the name of Rahab, who's a, who's a prostitute. Now, um, let's go on and read a little bit. It was told the king of Jericho. Now, this is interesting. They're no sooner there than immediately the king of Jericho finds out. Why? Because the other guys have spies too. It was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. Interesting, isn't it? He knows what they're doing. Uh, he, uh, these people knew about the people of Israel. They've known about them for 40 years. They've been worried about them for 40 years. They knew that God had opened the Red Sea, as we're going to see in a minute. Verse 4. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And immediately you say, She lied. She shouldn't have lied. Well, she's a pagan prostitute. And you say, Are you going to deal with Steve, the ethics of lying and all this? Uh, no, I'm not. Not tonight, I'm not. Now, I can refer you to some books that are that thick, and you can go read them. But I'm not getting into that tonight because I want to talk about character over charisma. Okay? All right. Took care of that, didn't I? That can raise a lot of issues. Verse 5. So she lied. She just flat out lied. But it's interesting because in Hebrews 11, she's spoken of as a great woman of faith. Uh, to whom much is given, much is required. Much wasn't given to her. She's a spiritual infant. She, she, she didn't have a Ryrie study Bible. Did she? All she knew was there was this great God that opened the Red Sea, and he would, they were, these guys are coming in. That's all she knew. She'd never taken a correspondence course from Moody Bible Institute. That's all she knew. There's this great God. Okay, now watch this. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they were from. Verse 5, it came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. Now, where are the men? They're on a roof, hidden in the flax. Yeah, the men went out. I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly. You'll overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof, hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. 
So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the fords, and as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. You see that? She knows. And that the terror of you has fallen on us. These people are, are absolutely scared to death because of the greatness of this God. And what he did 40 years before. Interestingly enough, the ten spies did not fear the Lord in his greatness. But here you got a pagan prostitute who fears this great God. She had more sense than the guys, ten of them, who were leaders of Israel. Um, I know the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water at the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now there's some theology. She knew that about God. He's greater than any of the pagan gods they sacrificed to in Jericho. Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you will also deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, Our lives for yours, if you do not tell this business of ours, and it shall come about when the Lord gives us this land. They don't say it shall come about if the Lord gives us this land. Did they? No, they speak of it as done. It shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window for her house was on the city wall so that she was living in, on the wall. She said, go to the hill country so that the pursuers will not happen upon you and hide yourselves there for three days until the pursuers return. Then afterward you may go on your way. Now 17, watch this. Then the men said to her, we shall be free from this oath to you, unless, uh, which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you have let us down, and gather to yourself into the house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. It shall come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be free. But anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell this business of ours, we shall be free from the oath which you have made us swear. She said, according to your words, so be it. She sent them away. They departed. She tied the scarlet cord in the window. All right, let's talk about these two guys for a minute. I, I want to make, uh, make five observations about these two men of whom we know nothing about. Number one. They had character because they were willing to risk their lives. They had character because they were willing to risk their lives. I think I mentioned this book earlier in the semester, Never Surrender, by uh, General William Boykin. He's uh, now retired. Uh, General Boykin was one of the uh, very first men chosen for Delta Force. You remember when Delta Force was a rumor, and we weren't even sure if it was true. We knew about the Navy SEALs, and we knew about the Green Berets, but Delta Force. Well, uh, General Boykin, I've had the pleasure of meeting him through my friend Stu Weber. 
Uh, and he later became not only the, one of the first guys in Delta Force, but became uh, commander of U.S. Army Special Forces, including Delta Force. This is a book worth reading, Never Surrender. Um, but he talks about those early days of Delta Force, and he says this uh, about the philosophy of Delta Force. He says, in some ways, this was a counterintuitive approach to military ops in the fact that there was no credit, there was no glory, and there would be no ticker tape parades. There would be no public award ceremonies or receptions. Our names would not appear in the newspapers. Success would be celebrated and war stories swapped only privately among an inner circle of special ops and intel professionals already privy to information about SCI level, sensitive compartmental information, missions. In fact, the Pentagon did not even officially acknowledge our existence. After Delta began, a standard search of military personnel records for a William G. Boykin would reveal that no man with that name ever served in the United States Army. They weren't in it for the credit. They weren't in it for the glory. But yet, when you read this, my gosh. You know what these guys were in Delta Force do? To risk their lives for the greater good. Now, that's a patriot. That's character. And I'm going to tell you something. Not everybody is a patriot. That's a crock. Everybody's not a patriot. Don't give me that. Okay, I'm feeling better now. <laughs> Let me make a second observation. They had character because they were tested and refined. Now, let me have you turn to a text. Actually, I can't have you turn to a text because I don't have a text to prove that. You know why I don't have a text to prove that? Because there's nothing that tells us about how they were tested and refined. But as we're going to see in a minute, you're going to see the character of these guys. Guys who have character, how did they get the character? Are you born with character like that? No, you're tested and refined. There's no shortcut to developing character. You develop character by going through difficulty. You develop character by going through the fire. You, go, you develop character by being tested and by being um, uh, beaten up and by losing some battles and by uh, figuring out what your convictions are and refusing to compromise when you must take a stand. I can't prove to you these guys were tested and refined. I, I think I can a little bit later. But you see, um, in the Bible, fruit is very important. John the Baptist told the Pharisees, he said, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. Who was it that was recently, I heard someone, oh, oh, I heard, yeah, I, I was doing a deal in California, and a guy was, took about 10 minutes, just gave his testimony how he came to the Lord. He did an excellent job. But he talked about his father, um, and he talked about his grandfather and his great-grandfather. His uh, great-grandfather was, was a man of God. His great-grandfather was a man of God. His father, however, wasn't. His, um, his, his father said the right things, and he said, my father um, took us to church, but my dad obviously didn't have in his life what my grandfather had in his life. 
He said, my dad professed to be a Christian, and I watched my dad for 50 years. He said, there was absolutely no fruit in my dad's life that indicated he knew Christ. For 50 years, I watched him. There was no evidence. There was no fruit. If there's no fruit, and you say you're a Christian for 50 years, you don't know Christ. Because fruit's going to come out. Interesting, his own son would say that. Tragic statement. Uh, by their character, we know these guys were tested. Now, let me three. Number three. They had character because they didn't seek the spotlight. Uh, just like the Delta Force guys. Hey, you do a great mission, there's no public awards, no ceremonies, no receptions, no ticker tape parades, no glory. That's what these guys were all about. I, I, it just blows me away. We don't know their names. That's astonishing. Especially when we live in an age today where some guy makes a, some guy makes a tackle and you think the sucker changed the course of hit Western civilization. <laughs> hey, pal, you just made a tackle. Don't they pay you to do that? Get back over there and shut up. That's a lack of character. Uh, number four. They had character because they were careful about their personal integrity. You remember that section we read? You said, what do you mean they were careful about their personal integrity? They made a covenant with this gal. But they were very careful to make sure that the covenant, the agreement, was clearly understood. Look, at, you tie the scarlet cord. You don't tell anybody about this. You bring your family members inside the house, and that scarlet cord is tied to it. If anything happens to anybody in the house, their blood is on us. However, if anybody goes outside of the house, their blood is on themselves. Their word mattered. What they, say, what they said was important to them. They were very careful in delineating the terms of the agreement. Now I get to number five. And number five is where I want to camp tonight. Number five is this. They had character because they were sexually disciplined. I'll say it again. They had character because they were sexually disciplined. Um, kind of what I'm doing here Tonight, you guys ever watch uh, the TV show uh, Monk, the detective, the obsessive, uh, obsessive compulsive detective in San Francisco, Adrian Monk. Have you ever watched this guy? Um, I, I mean, he's just really, he's, the guy's really different. But they bring him in, he's sort of like a modern day Sherlock Holmes. They bring him in these situations and nobody can figure it out. And he walks in. And he walks into a crime scene, and he's, he's just watching everything, and then he starts doing it. He, he starts doing it. He starts going. And everybody's just standing around watching him like you're watching me. Everybody's thinking, what the heck is this sucker doing? You got to watch it. Just watch it once. Just, just to check this guy out. 
And what he's doing is he's reading between the lines. And, and he observes things that nobody else observes. And he's putting stuff together. He's putting the pieces together, and, and he observes ex- very, very, very carefully. That's what Sherlock Holmes used to do. You know, elementary, my dear Watson. It's not elementary. If it was, we'd all get it. You're the only one here that gets this thing. You see? Um, that's kind of what I want to do with these guys. Because we don't have a lot of information about them, but I'm going to tell you something. These guys, these guys were men of character. The reason they were, why did Joshua choose these two guys? Because of their personalities? Because they could work a room? I'd appreciate your vote in November. God bless you. I won't raise your taxes. You know? Hey, I'm for you. None of you guys are shaking my hand. What's the deal here? You guys are jaded men. You trust no one. Uh, did he trust them because of their personalities? I don't think so. Did he trust them because of their gifts? I don't think so. Look, at the last time there was a recon mission, it was a train wreck. Don't you think Joshua was going to be exceedingly careful as to the caliber of the two men that he chose to go in and do this mission? I think so. Uh, Now they go to Rahab's house. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. Now who's this Rahab? What's her deal? What does she do? Is he a school teacher? What is she? She's a prostitute. She's a harlot. And she's got a, she's got a business. She's, she's got a home office there. And guys come and go. That's why they went in there. You know, there's a lot of cover. You go in there, there's a house of ill repute. That's what she did. Um, Campus Crusade has a little uh, booklet that they've used for a long time called The Four Spiritual Laws. And Law 2, uh, not Law 1 rather, says... Uh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You know what's interesting about this gal, Rahab? So they show up, they go into the land, and they go to this gal's house, Rahab. You know what's interesting about Rahab? God loved her and had a wonderful plan for her life. This prostitute. Did they know that? Probably not. They're just showing up. So if you look at Matthew 2, I think it's Matthew 2. I'm working out of a different Bible here. Hold on. See, my problem is when things have got to fall in the right place. And see, when I was walking out tonight, my hands were full, and I had to put my Bible down to grab my keys. And I grabbed my keys, and I walked out without my Bible. So I borrowed Lou's Bible. And Lou's Bible is wrong. It's laid out wrong. (laughs) It's supposed to be on the left side of the page, Lou. I'm up here going like this. I'm trying to figure out where it is. It's Matthew 1.5. See, you actually know your Bible, don't you? That's the difference between you and me. You, you've, got a, you've got a genealogy here. Now, here's the thing. You decide, I'm going to read through the Bible this year. You know, you ever do that? Or I'm going to read through the New Testament. You're up at 5.30 and you read Matthew 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. It's 5.30 in the morning and you're tired. We tend not to get real excited over genealogies. But there's a reason they're in here. 
Look at verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, etc., etc. Look at verse 5. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Rahab the prostitute, who had a very small, minuscule faith in this great God that opened the Red Sea. That's all she knew. She was a prostitute. She was a harlot. But God had a plan for her life. And, her, and God's plan for this prostitute's life is that she would be gloriously changed by her faith in the coming Messiah, who was yet to come, and that she would actually be in Hebrews 11 in God's hall of fame and God's hall of faith. So watch what happens here. This is fast forwarding. See, these guys are just showing up. She's a prostitute. They don't know any of this. She doesn't know any of this. But here's what happened. Uh, she married a guy by the name of Salmon, and they had a son by the name of Boaz. Now, what's interesting about that is that Boaz, then if you read verse 5, Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. Ruth. There's a book in the Old Testament called Ruth. This gal, Ruth, had a mother-in-law named Naomi. And Naomi's husband died, and, her, and uh, Ruth's husband died, and then she had a sister-in-law, and his, uh, her husband died as well. And so Ruth was sojourning in the land, and she was going to go back, and Ruth said, well, I'm going to go with you. Wherever you go, I'll go. So she goes back. And in the providence and sovereignty of God, Ruth winds up marrying Boaz. And who is Boaz? He's the son of a former prostitute who came to know the Lord. Hmm. All right, and then we go on. You guys still with me? See, these genealogies are kind of interesting, aren't they? Uh, so, so Boaz uh, has a son by the name of Obed by his wife Ruth, and Obed was the father of Jesse. Who's Jesse? Jesse is the father of a guy by the name of David. Verse 6, Jesse was the father of David the king. The city of Jerusalem is still called today the city of David. You go to, you, you, you go to Jerusalem and you want to see, you, you, you want to see something interesting happen, just go over to the King David Hotel and just park yourself on that patio and order an iced tea and watch who comes in there. Heads of states, Secretary of States, they all come to Jerusalem and you know where they stay? In the King David Hotel. Greatest king in the history of Israel. Greatest king in the history of Israel and um, Rahab. Who's Rahab? Rahab is his, David? It's his great, great grandmother. Now, you guys, so you guys got that there? There's a piece of the puzzle, okay? Now, I want to ask you a question. What if these two guys showed up at Rahab's place? And what if these guys were full of charisma, but they didn't have character? 
What if these guys had not been tested and tried? There is a giant that every man faces. Here's a giant tonight we'll talk about. You wonder if we were going to get to a giant. The giant tonight that we're going to look at in the lives of these guys, took me a while to set it up, but the giant is the giant of uh, sexual temptation. And it doesn't matter if you're 12 or 112. And you can barely breathe. You can still lust, can't you? Isn't it funny? I mean, sexual temptation comes into your life at least once every 90 days. Uh, Does it not? Yeah. Probably more like every 90 seconds. Why is that? It's because we're men. We're men. We deal with sexual temptation all the time. I think it's the primary way, um, I think it's the primary way and, and that, that, that the enemy brings down men. It's through sexual temptation. And, and never has it been more difficult in the history of the world to deal with sexual temptation than it is right now. Because never have we been assaulted as we are right now. Now, I want to ask you a question. What if these, what if one of these two guys, what if one of these two guys walked in there and thinks to himself, you know, we're gonna, this, 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 this trip's going to take a while. And this Rahab, hmm, pretty nice looking chick here. And, and what if the guy is tempted? Let me ask you something. What if this guy had a proposition Rahab and gone upstairs and slept with her? Do you think there might have been some ramifications in the life of this woman who had a very minute faith in the God of Israel? Do you think that could have adversely affected her? Because she only knew two men, she only knew two men who knew this God of Israel, and they were the two spies that were in his house that were in her house. But what if these guys didn't have a handle on their own character and succumbed to the giant of sexual temptation and slept with her? Would there have been some ramifications? Yes. But they didn't. They didn't. Flip over to Titus 2. Thanks, Lou. Flip over to Titus chapter 2. Uh, here's another piece to the puzzle. We, we actually looked at uh, Titus last uh, spring. And in Titus, uh, on the right side of the page, yeah, on the other right, hold on a second, here. I'm finding my spot. Give me a second. Give me a second. It's here. It's there. Man, I mean, honestly, this is weird. There it is. It's in chapter 2. He says, but as for you, speak to things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Now watch this. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. I'm going to just give you a summary of what all those terms mean. Uh, Men, older men who are temperate, you know what that means? It means they're sober. 
it, it primarily is used in regards to alcohol. They're not drunks. That's what it means. When, when, when you're drunk, you're a different man than when you're sober. When you're drunk, you're out of control. When you're sober, you're in control. That's the problem with alcohol. Uh, so older men uh, are in the church are to be sober men. Older men are to be dignified. You know what that means? They're to be serious. You're serious. Um, uh, old, uh, and sensible, the next one is tied very closely with. What does it mean to be sensible? It means you have good judgment. It, has, it means you have sound judgment. It means you have gravitas. You have gravity. When you have gravitas, when you have gravity, you know what that means? You got your feet on the ground. And when you got your feet on the ground, you're not going anywhere. You can be trusted. You are, you know, there's a whole lot to be said for being predictable. Being predictable because of your character. You can be trusted because you're stable, because you're serious, because you're dignified, because you've got gravitas, because you've got your feet on the ground, and you're not always running over here and running over there and running off on this whim and acting like an adolescent. Sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Um, you've got your feet on the ground, you're sound in your faith, you know who God is. Uh, in love, in your relationships, you've got your feet on the ground. In, in perseverance, you're staying the course. And then it's interesting because then it says in verse 6, it says likewise, so that's how the old men are supposed to be, the older guys. How many of you guys are over 40? You're the old guys. Okay? Get over it. That's who you are. You're the old guy. Don't go get a facelift. All right? Forget the Botox. Be a man. All right? Uh, spend your money. Give your money to missions. Stay ugly. It'll be good for you. All right? Verse 6. It's about character anyway, isn't it? So be an ugly guy who loves Christ. God can even use you. All right, look at verse 6. So what are the, now, now what about the young guys? Well, he says, urge the young men to be sensible. Oh, okay. He wants them to be sensible. Yeah, but he, the old guys are supposed to be sensible too. What's the best way for a young guy to learn to be sensible? By watching an old guy who's sensible. That's how it's supposed to work. Turn over to Proverbs 7. What's going on in Proverbs 7? Well, uh, Proverbs 7 is part of the wisdom literature. And all the way through the book of Proverbs, here's what you got going on. You've got a father teaching a son all the way through Proverbs. All the way through Proverbs, you see the statement, my son, my son, my son, my son. You get to verse 7. He says, uh, my son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live. And my teaching is the apple of your eye. Uh, okay, look at verse 5. So, so why does he want his son to listen to his words? That they may keep you from an adulteress and from the foreigner who flatters you with her words. What is the primary way that the enemy brings down men? It's through sexual temptation. It... it, it it's, it, my gosh, guys, we, you can't even open an email anymore. You just don't know. They, they, they mask it, they counterfeit it, they get in there, and you, you don't mean, I mean, it's just there. It's, we're barraged with this stuff. It's everywhere.
I, I got to tell you something. It blows me away to think about the plan that God had for Rahab's life and how easily her elementary faith in the great God of Israel could have been devastated by the conduct of a man who represented God to her, who took advantage of her because he hadn't developed his own character to become sexually disciplined. There used to be a guy that was preaching to more people 20 years ago than anybody else on the face of the earth, including Billy Graham. And he was going and holding crusades all over the world. And I'm going to tell you something. This guy, would he'd, he'd, flat, he'd flat preach against sexual immorality. But the thing that brought him down was he never conquered it by the Spirit of God in his own life. He had unbelievable charisma. He had remarkable gifts. And when he went to the prostitute, who eventually gave him away, one of the reasons she turned him in was because she was so devastated, because as soon as he walked in, she recognized him, because in her moments of guilt and of grief, she'd turn him on and listen to him preach the gospel. And where is she today? I don't know, but I'd be surprised if she's following the Lord. You see how this stuff counts? You see how this stuff matters? People are watching us, guys. You don't have to be some big shot evangelist. People are watching us. So, so what do you got here? So, so, so let me go back to these two guys for a minute. So you see, Joshua's not going in on the recon mission. He's got to stay back with the people. So he picks two guys. He's not, he's not looking at their charisma. He's not looking at their resume. He didn't care where they went to, he didn't care where they went to school. You think he just picked two community organizers and popped them in there? <laughs> you think that's what he did? No, you know what he did? Let me tell you something. He looked for some men with gravitas. And I'm gonna tell you something else. He, I, I'm gonna tell you something. I'm telling you, he knew these two guys. He knew him like the back of his hand. He knew him. He'd seen him tested. He had interacted with them. He had talked with them. He had put them through the... You say it's not in the text. I'm telling you it happened, and you know it happened. Don't you? And let's get to heaven, and let's ask them. And let's say that's exactly what happened. Because it comes out in their lives. It comes out in the fruit. You don't get... These guys are going out, and the last time it was all screwed up, so he's picking two guys that are tried and tested. You read Boykin's book. You read Boykin's book about what they did with these guys who became Delta Force guys. They beat the crud out of these suckers. They'd drop them in the mountains of North Carolina with a compass. And they said, be here in three days. I mean, they could give them a compass. Hey, you go find your own water. Well, I don't have anything to eat. You're out of here. Go dig, go eat a root. <laughs> eat a bug. We don't care what you eat. See, they just, they, I mean, you read the opening chapters there and you get depressed. I mean, what they put these guys through was unbelievable. That's what Joshua did. 
These guys were tested because when you get out there, you get out there on the firing line, they, he had to know they had the character to perform. And they did. So how does this work? I'm telling you, Joshua spent time with these guys. He was an older man. These are younger guys. He developed them. The older men are to teach the younger men. Fathers are to teach their sons. What's the huge issue in your son's life? What's the huge issue in your grandson's life? The same issue that's in your life, sexual temptation. Watch what this guy does here. He's, 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 in Proverbs 7, what is he doing? He's saying, I want you to listen to my words. I want you to seek wisdom. Verse 5, that they may keep you from an adulteress for the foreigner who flatters with her words. You know what good coaches do? Good coaches prepare their players for situations that are going to come up before the situation ever comes up. Do they not? They talk to them. All right, these guys run this offense. When they run this offense, you're going to face it. You've never faced this offense before. So what that means is you're going to see this, and you're going to see this, and you're going to see this, and you're going to see this. Well, they've never seen it before. That's right, but I'm telling you, you're going to see it. And then when you prepare them, when they see it, you tell them what to do when they see it. That's coaching. That's vision. That's what older guys are supposed to do. That's what's going on here. And then he says to his son, uh, verse 6, For at the window of my house I looked out through the lattice, and I saw among the naive, I discerned among the youths, a young man lacking sense. So it's like he's up on the balcony, and he says, I'm looking out, and I see this young guy, and he lacks sense. Young guys lack sense. That's why they're supposed to learn from older men. Who are the older men? There are older guys who used to be younger guys who lacked sense, and they got the crud kicked out of them, and now they got some sense. Right? Isn't that how you get sense? Sure. I saw a young man lacking sense, passing through the street near her corner. Now watch this. Watch this. Now he, he's instructing his son. He's telling him this story. He's passing the street through, near her corner. He takes the way to her house. By the way, don't take the way to her house. And if she's on the corner, don't go to the corner. Because bad company corrupts good morals. Have you ever told your son that? Have you ever told your grandson that? There are certain people you avoid. The most important thing about you are the, people, are the, are the friends you're going to choose. He who walks with wise men will be wise. You know? Oh, I want to say something. I'm thinking about it. Anyway, you, you get what I'm saying. Okay. See, this is, this is what... Well, I'm saying when you're carefully... carefully hey, let, let me say this to you. Carefully choose your friends because one day... Um, you may be a public figure. How's that for being discreet? Huh? And I'm not talking about, you say, oh, you're talking about a, that candidate. I'm talking about both of them. Both of them. You say, well, only one's in question. Well, that ought to tell you something. I've mentioned no names here. I'm just saying it always comes down to character. Does it not? Choose your friends carefully. He who walks with wise men will be wise. Okay. Now watch this. Watch this. 
passing near the street, near a corner. And he takes the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, in the dark. And behold, what he's doing is he's, ta- he's telling the son, here's a situation that happens. I see a guy that lacks sense, and here's what he does. In other words, don't you do this, because you're going to be tempted to do this. Behold, a woman comes out to meet him, dressed as a harlot, cunning of heart. She's boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She's now in the streets, now in the squares, looks by every corner, so she seizes him and kisses him. With a brazen face, she says to him, I was due to... He's telling his son, this is going to be a situation one day you'll encounter. You might be stationed in South Korea. You might be stationed in the Philippines. You might be stationed, you know, somewhere, and it... Yeah, have you ever heard Chuck talk about when he went into the military and he got shipped overseas and he didn't think he was going overseas and he separated from Cynthia for how many months? And he's got to walk down the street and these gals are on both sides and he's got to look straight ahead. You see? Because somebody had poured into his life. And aren't you glad they did? Yes, you are. Uh, look at verse 17. See, look at the allurement. Uh, 16. I've spread my couch with coverings, with colored linens. You know, I've sprinkled my bed with mirror, aloes, and cinnamon, you know. Um, 21. With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly, he follows her as an axe goes through the slaughter. Hey, bozo. She's walking you through the gates, man. And you're so enticed, and you're so, you know, turned on, and you're so, you don't know there's some jack standing over you with a sledgehammer, and he's going to bring it down on your brain here in about two seconds. You're going to the slaughterhouse. You see what's going on here? It's a father instructing his son about how to handle sexual temptation. I'm telling you, Joshua did this with these two young guys that he trusted to do this recon mission. And then, in, and then in verse 8, I don't have time to do uh, uh, chapter 8, you know what he talks about? He goes right back to wisdom. Wisdom, 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 wisdom. Listen to it. Listen to it. See, the problem is when you're young, you don't think about the consequences of your choices. Do you? Because you're young. You lack sense. So what do young guys need? They need old guys to say, look it. When this happens to you, and this looks good, and you're tempted here, and you're going to feel this way, and this is going to happen, you got to think, and you got to run, because if you do this, you're an ox going to the slaughter, and you're going to regret it for the rest of your life. Now, that's your job as a father. It's your job as a grandfather. Are you doing it? Well, you know, I, I bought him video games. Talk to him. Well, no one ever talked to me. Well, then that's why you ought to talk to him. Right? Don't you wish somebody had to talk to you? Then talk to him. Coach him. I'm a junior in high school. I'm 16 years old, and I get this job. My dad has a friend uh, who runs the, uh, he's the manager of the valet parking at uh, San Francisco International Airport. And I landed this job. It was unbelievable. Uh, I had to join the union, and it was union scale, it was union wage. And I'm a 16-year-old kid, I'm working with guys in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. And I'm making, I'm making five times what any of my friends are making. And you know what I do? I park really nice cars. <laughs> because it was expensive to valet park on purpose, because they didn't want a lot of people in there because they didn't have a lot of spaces. It was expensive. 
So my dad got me, you know, this guy who put me on, on the weekends. I still don't know why he put me on, but he did. And we go up on the ramp to get cars, and uh, there's, a, there's a brand new Porsche, there's a Bentley, there's a Rolls, there's a new Mercedes Rolls, uh, uh, Roadster, there's a Fassel Vega, whatever the heck that is. I'm not exaggerating. I drove everything. And we get, we get in, you know, everybody gets a car. We got a guy in a little Bronco, and he follows us out to the lot, and if we had something really hot... Everybody get out of the way, and you just gun that sucker down the straightaway. <laughs> I'm telling you, don't ever park in valet parking. <laughs> don't ever do it. And if it was a real nice car, there used to be a guy named Nate Thurmond. Gosh, I shouldn't even say this. He might come after me. There was a guy named Nate Thurmond. Big center for the Warriors, 6'11". Guy was a great ball player. Uh, he pulled up one day in a brand-new Cadillac Fleetwood. And I got in that sucker, and it had about 38 miles on it. <laughs> Might have been 68. It was under 100. That was a nice car. <laughs> and it was Sunday morning. There weren't a lot of guys around, you know. A lot of so you know what we did? We parked the Bronco, and we decided we were going to use Nate's car as a shuttle. <laughs> and then later, I thought about that, and I thought, oh, crud. If that guy checked that mileage. <laughs> Here's what I want on my, on my tombstone right here. Just say this. He was lacking sense. That, that, that's what you put on my tomb. Anyway, I had a phenomenal job. Phenomenal job. Um, I had it for two years. Before I went to work my first shift, my dad said to me that afternoon, he goes, hey, Steve, I want to tell you something. He said, uh, this guy's really doing you a favor. And uh, so you, you really need to handle this well. He said, I want to tell you something else. The guys you're going to be working up there, you don't want to hang out with them. You don't want to listen to them. You need to be real smart. Because these guys are into all kinds of different things. And you need to be real careful. I'm just telling you, you need to have your radar up all the time. Don't hang out with them. You, you, you know, you, you do your job and you'd be easy to get along with, but you'd be real careful. About six months later, seven months later, eight months later, I'm working swing shift on a Saturday night, done at midnight. We go out to get, our, get in our cars and leave. And the guy was in my supervisor. He's probably late 30s. He goes to start his car. His car won't start. And... Uh, you know, he said, well, I can call, you know, I can go, you know, the garage is closed. And he goes, hey, is there any way you could give me a lift? I live right off the freeway there. I said, I'll, I'll give you a lift. Well, what I, you know, this, I didn't realize, but this guy had probably had, because it was Saturday night, late shift, he'd probably had three, four, five beers. And he had it hidden in the storage room. And he was pretty well schnockered by the time he got in my car. I didn't realize it. So I get, I, I'm taking him off, you know, get off the exit there. I can show you right where it is in Burlingame, California. And we pull off, and he goes, he goes, hey, you got a minute? And I said, well, I need to be getting, because I got to obey. He goes, I want to show you something. It's really, you'll love this. He said, just come up for a minute. I want to show you something in my apartment. And I said, okay. So I go up there, and he says, he says, you want something to drink? And I said, no, I'm fine. I got, I got to get going. He goes, I want to show you real quick. And he takes a container out of the kitchen, and he pours it on the uh, counter, and it says white powder. Now, this is 1966. It's 66. And I'm thinking, what's he pouring sugar on the counter for? 
And he takes out this little straw, and he says, this stuff is really well. All you do is snore. I said, what is that stuff? He goes, it's cocaine. This guy sold cocaine. I said, it's cocaine. I mean, people in 66 didn't even, do, didn't even smoke dope. He just had a few beers at a party. And, and this guy says, try it. I said, no, I, I, no, I got to go. He goes, no, I want you to try it. I said, I'm not trying it. I'm leaving. He says, you need to try. I said, I'm leaving. And I walked out the door. I was shaken. I drove home. It's about 2 o'clock. I walk into my dad's room. Hey, Dad. My dad gets up, and we go in the kitchen. I can still stand in there, see him standing there in his jockey shorts. <laughs> and he's leaning up against the counter, and he's listening. He goes, what's going on? And I said, hey, Dad, you remember when you told me about those guys to be careful of and all that? I said, let me tell you what happened. I said, this guy, and I, I was trying to help him out. And I said, you know what I'm telling you? He goes, he goes hmm. I said, so Dad, what do I do? I mean, I'm going to see him probably tomorrow. He said, here's what you do. He said, by the way, you do the right thing. You're trying to help the guy, right? Yeah. He said, next time I wouldn't go in. I said, but we, I'm not going in again, Dad. He goes, okay, you, you learned a lesson there. He said, you did the right thing because you got out of there. I said, yeah, I'm going to see the guy. What do I do? He says, you don't say a word about it. That's what you do. It'll be fine. I said, you sure? He said, I'm sure. It'll be fine. And that's exactly what happened. You know, I'm grateful for a dad who coached me about a situation that he knew would probably come. Did he hit the exact situation? No, but he was in the ballpark. You see what I'm saying? See, guys? You're an older guy and you've developed character. What do you do with that? You teach younger guys. And you prepare them. I'm telling you that's what Joshua did. And I'm telling you that's why they didn't take advantage of Rahab. Because God used their sexual discipline to bring honor to his name. Our choices count, do they not? Don't worry about charisma. Don't worry about personality. Worry about character. Let's bow our heads. Thank you, Father. These lessons are as important today as the day they occurred. We want to be men who follow you in public and in the dark when nobody's around. That's our desire and that's our heart as we commit our lives to you. Thank you that you forgive our past and that you make us new men. We've all screwed up in here, but there's forgiveness with you. And you pick us up and you clean us up and you give us new hearts and you put us on the path because you're going to use us. We trust you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.